Welcome back, 8.15 on this Friday morning. J.R. Simmer, Matty Valls is in for uh, Hammer, who starts his uh, holiday, t- the minivan. Will it be there at 8.30 this morning for the pickup at the rental place? That is the multi-million dollar question, my friends. T-minus 15 minutes. Yeah, and once that question is answered, will he actually be able to get it across the border? That one to be answered probably in two hours or less. Ah, oh, the inquiring minds want to know. So many questions out there. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll bring in an update if we have one before we leave at 10 o'clock this morning. Lots of hockey to talk about. Sens coming off a big 5-4 win over Seattle last night to even uh, the road trip record at 1-1 one one as they head to uh, Vancouver and Calgary for games uh, this weekend. So to talk about that and all things hockey as we head into the weekend, we welcome our TSN Hockey Insider, Dave Poulin. As always, a presentation of the Myers Automotive Group. How are you doing this morning, Dave? Very well, gentlemen. Well rested after, I don't know, six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep or whatever it was. I feel like a morning radio guy. <laughs> I'm up bright and early and I'm coming off the high of a big win. And and it was fun last night. It was fun because all of the things were happening that are going to happen down a playoff run stretch. And including the way the game shaped out, including the way they started. I think the day off in Seattle, having that extra day was really, really important. How nice really is that, Pooley, with the, as you said, with the three-hour time change? I know it's crazy, but after the clunker Monday night, yeah, what, did this not just set up perfectly to just reset and get ready to tackle the three-hour time change? Yeah, no question about it. And there's, yeah, I, I think there's still something fresh about going to Seattle for the guys. And by the way, I haven't made that trip yet, so I haven't seen that building. Craig Button generally does the games out there uh, with Brian Mudrick on the West Coast, so I don't make that that northern uh, west swing that often. So I've been in the building, but I think it's a, it's, it's still so fresh for the guys and, and getting out of Chicago and getting in there and getting a couple of days to really settle in, I think was a factor. And then the game took over and the way it started couldn't have been better, just was energized. And, and then even the way, Seattle came back. It wasn't like Seattle was dominating. They got a couple bounces and they took advantage of them. There were two pucks I didn't like. Um, there would be the, I think the second and the fourth goals were both plays where you get a face-off win or you have control of the puck and you make a play up to the high board. Your winger has to handle it. Matthew Joseph didn't handle it the first time and Austin Watson didn't handle it the second on the fourth goal. And those are things that are just little tiny details. So you don't, you know, the puck took bounces both times and went in and you're like, okay, well, that wasn't really the factor. The factor is you're in full control of the puck. And, you know, there were guys who took more pride in getting the puck out at the blue line. than They didn't scoring goals because they knew they could do that. And, and I think of guys that would handle pucks around the boards after practice for a half an hour, just making sure no matter what happened, that puck was going out and the defense was paying a price as it was going. But I think the play that Claude Giroux makes on the winning goal is sums up Claude Giroux for the whole year because it wasn't it wasn't the fourth goal, which was the tying goal slap shot. It wasn't, you know, significant in, in terms of flashy or anything. But he goes into the corner and he beats Alexiak, takes it away from him basically. Alexiak is six six, two hundred and forty pounds, guys. And that was impressive. But the way he shields the big man's body as he's coming up the boards, then he runs into Bjorkstrand, and he'll reach out. Watch it on the highlights. It's, it's awesome because as he puts the puck back to the point, he reaches out, the KG veteran, and just gets a piece of Bjorkstrand with his hand. 
and holds him for a split second and that's let Sanderson get the puck down low. So just an exciting game to win, but all those little details that have to happen for you to win a game happened in Ottawa's favor last night. It was a really, uh, it was a roller coaster of the game with the great start. Uh, then, yeah, yeah, I think the first three goals that Seattle got all were bounces, right? They didn't actually shoot it into the net, but regardless, that's hockey, right? Luck is a huge part of hockey as well. They go down, they go down 4-3 and you're thinking, you know, early in the third and you're thinking uh, if you're the Sens, well, you know, and, and the fan base, they've blown a 3 nothing lead, you know, in this, in this playoff chase. This is, this is going to be incredibly uh, tough defeat. How important was, and, and I, you know, I agree with you on the, on the Giroux goal on the game winner or a play, but what about the Giroux goal itself on the very next shift after Seattle had, uh, had gone ahead? How important was that's, that? That's absolutely huge. And it, it's, it's the timing. You, you know, when the announcer doesn't have the first goal called and you're scoring the second goal, that it's good. <laughs> and, and it was Stutzel who makes the play, right? He, he gets in on the forecheck and makes the play and steals the puck with his stick. Your best players have to do that. And I took so much pride in being put on the ice after a goal for or against. And I think those are the most important shifts of the game because you can't, you, if you've been scored against, you're trying to get one back. If you've scored a goal, you're not giving one up. And I think those are special shifts to be chosen for. And it's not just who's up next. I think those are shifts that, that should be controlled by a coach. And that's where you can break up the rotation and put out five guys who you say you know we're going to get you right back in the game, and it was Stutzel and Giroux who did it. Uh, uh, JR pointed out in the first hour, just talking about the deactivating, we had Hamannick, of all people, in the high slot against Columbus. Uh, last night you see Chikorin a couple of times holding. Have you noticed something different in what Ottawa's D are doing? There's more engagement up ice, and I think it's happening in a couple of occasions, um, a couple of different instances, rather. It's, it's happening on wraps. And it doesn't seem like they're bailing out as quickly from up ice. And it, it's funny because the Chikrin goal, that happened to be Holden who passed it to Chikrin deep in the slot. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, that's number five and number six. <laughs> but when you look at the structure there, uh, they've got protection behind them. And the thing I love about it, Simber, is it puts a lot of heat on the forwards. And, and I say that you've got to be responsible. You can't ask the D to go if you're not willing to stay on the backside and protect them on the backside. And I think that's that's inclusion on defense. That puts a lot of heat on the forwards in a good way, and it frees up the D. And Defensive structures are so good through the neutral zone. If you don't have a fourth guy joining the play, you can't penetrate. You simply can't. And he doesn't even have to be touching the puck or in the play. He just has to be filling a, play, a lane and causing a distraction. It's just so important that they get up on the play and they act. It might be a touch pass that they give right back. It might be just taking up space. And, and I, I, it, was, it was interesting because that hold and little tap pass to Chikrin was like, okay, someone's in the wrong place here really quickly. But then when the, when the big screen comes out a little bit wider, you're like, nope, everybody's in good shape. Do you think that's the, uh, the, the and, and I've, I've probably noticed it, within the last 10 to 15 games, because I started noticing Zub down in front of the opposition net. Brandstrom has become much more engaged, uh, you know, down low. We're used to it with Shabbat and Sanderson, but it's everybody now. Do you believe this is just part of the natural evolution uh, of of DJ Smith kind of introducing a new system as they're going along and the players are maturing? Or was this the coaching staff kind of recognizing, we just need to do something different uh, in, in, in order to uh, keep scoring goals? 
if you think about it, the challenge through that stage you're talking about was five-on-five goals. The team was not scoring five-on-five goals. The power play, I think, was up to number two in the league at one point. So the success was coming off the strength of the power play. So I do believe it was a conscious effort. I also believe it was getting everybody back healthy because at some point through the early part of the season, there was, I think, a pretty much a defenseman out at all points. Was there not of that top group you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Zub was out at one point. Um, certainly Sanderson was out at some point. So I think getting everybody back, getting healthy, it maybe is most noticeable with Brandstrom because you think that's the type of play he has to be involved in. I still marvel. I was talking to Gord in Chicago on Monday night, and when Brandstrom gets a scoring opportunity, I'm still, has he still got three goals in his entire career? Like, how is that possible that, that a player, you know, that seems to be up ice and involved as much as he is, hasn't scored more goals? So it's more noticeable with him because you're expecting it of him. You're not necessarily expecting it of Nick Holden. And yet Holden looks comfortable with Chickren guys. And, and I know we've talked about where Chickren fits and, you know, where this all goes. But he looks comfortable in that pairing. And it leaves the other guys together right now. So it'll be interesting. It's a challenge right now for Bramstrom to get back in. But it may be situational, you know, back-to-back or however it plays out. And to that, Pooley, as you evolve as a better team, more ozone time, do you think that's something that Shabbat in particular can improve on is not, not breaking the play so quickly? Like I'm watching Chickren yesterday, you know, there's a real kind of thing of not forcing it, but at the same time holding your pattern, almost like you're a pilot, right? It's like, listen, I'm in the slot area here. Don't peel off too quickly where I feel like Shabbat a lot of times is so quick to get in the zone, but also so quick to get back. Well, I think that's, you know, from he was a little bit on an island when he would have been the only guy that yeah. you looked at as an offensive defenseman. And when you're the only one, I think you feel that responsibility. And when that's your cachet, right? Your cachet is you're the guy that's going. I think you feel more heat. Now that he sees everybody doing it, and by the way, when everybody's doing it, that's back to the responsibility on the forwards to cover. You know there's a good chance that Chickwin's going to be up ice, guys. And you know that Sanderson has no qualms about being up ice. But to see all of the guys involved and all of the guys comfortable in doing it flips the pressure to the defense and makes – or flips the pressure to the to the forwards. But it makes the defenseman more comfortable too because you know you're going to get protection there. Ottawa moves on for a pair of games this weekend. It's never easy to to, to play and win on the road, period, um, uh, let alone uh, play back-to-back. So let's start with what they'll see Saturday night uh, in Vancouver – uh, do you see, um, I mean, the results are certainly better, but do you see a a better uh, Vancouver team under Rick Tockett than under Bruce Boudreaux? Yes. Yes, I do. And I watched them pretty closely because of my my friendship with Rick. You know, it goes back a long way. And we were, we roomed together for a number of years in Philly. And, you know, he was a young 20-year-old and I was played the mentor role for him. Uh, early on and, and we're very tight we've stayed tight over the years so you watch the team differently um, but I do think it's a fair answer for me to even with a bias to say yes because they are playing better and you know interestingly enough you know two of the names that we heard from the outside as you know being at odds with each other were were number 40 and number nine Pedersen and Miller well, what do you do when that's the case? I mean, this is almost, you know, the high school teacher making them sit together in class. Uh, he's playing them together a lot, shorthanded in particular. They're scoring shorthanded, like, every game. <laughs> and two one night. And they're doing it together. 
So I think that's an interesting move, but they are playing more structured and, and they're just playing better, playing simpler and playing better and playing on the defensive side of things. And, you know, obviously getting Demko back is a factor for that team. Um, Doesn't it seem like Miller's way, way more engaged now? Like to like talk it has gotten to him. Totally. It totally does. And, you know, he would take that as a personal challenge. I mean, Rick, Rick would take that and say, okay, you know, I mean, this is a guy that, that I'm going to pinpoint because I know how important he is to the team. And, you know, he was the, he was essentially, you know, you're singled out when you sign a long-term deal and then your captain is traded because there's not enough money left. And so you're really singled out and you had a monster year last year, but you're not doing it again. And it seems to be in disarray, but it does seem to me like he is way more engaged uh, without a question and how effective he is when he is engaged and how he expects to be the guy. And I don't know if you saw the overtime goal against Anaheim. He essentially said at that point in the game, like, get out of the way. I'm, I'm going to score a goal here. Like it wasn't, you know, it was so clear that he was taking over that game at that point and blew that puck um, right up over the shoulder uh, of the Anaheim goalie. And it was like, holy smokes, he just totally dominated. And, uh, you know, it was docile with that and just said, I, I'm scoring a goal here. So when you have the leaders on the team, and don't forget, they lost some players from that team too. They lost Luke and they lost um, Bo Horvat and, you know, made some changes, but it appears to be a tighter group. They're a couple games over 500 and they're hard out. Even the games they've lost, they're, they're involved in. And Pooley, going back to that in Arizona, did we maybe underrate the work of Rick Tockett? Because they were very organized, very hardworking, and people said, oh, they play a defensive style. Well, hey, he had no, no offensive players. And now in Vancouver, when you look at that core, if you bring that same structure and attention to detail, that should be a pretty good hockey team. Well, they've got way more pieces than he yeah. had to work with in, in Arizona, no question. And I think of the bubble when his that team was arguably at their best when they sort of peaked up for that. But, you know, this is the first opportunity, I believe, that he's had with a team with this type of talent. You know, his first uh, shot at head coaching was in Tampa and when that team was in disarray. And, and then, but, you know, how much he grew in Pittsburgh in the number two role and the role that he was allowed to play there as the Sid Whisper or whatever it would be in the way he, he was effective with Malkin and, and Kessel in particular. And the role he played for Mike Sullivan was pretty well noted. Uh, Edmonton uh, becomes the first team to come back to and beat Boston when the Bruins score the first goal of the game, and also uh, the first time the Bruins have lost when having a lead after second uh, the second period. Is that a bigger deal for Boston or a bigger deal for Edmonton? Oh, I think it is for Edmonton. Um, you know, I think Boston's going to be just fine, and they look just fine. But so I'm a hockey fan. You guys are hockey fans, and, and we watch a lot of games. And but last night was a game that you're like, okay, well, I, I got to watch this game. This has to be on and I have to watch it because of, of, you know, the guns on Edmonton and, and playing against Boston in Boston where they just don't lose in regulation. So it was a fun game to watch. There was, it was back and forth and up and down and, and really fun to watch. But I think that's a much bigger statement for Edmonton to be able to go into that building and do something that, just hasn't been done this year against a good team. And it wasn't like Boston didn't play well. They did play well. And and Skinner gets a start and, 
you know, coming out of the trade deadline, the only loss that Edmonton has was a 7-5 game in which Jack Campbell was flat out not very good. And that's the only game he's played, you know, through that stretch. It's Ben Skinner that's been the guy. And, you know, on trade deadline day, I picked Edmonton and Matthias Ekholm as, as the most significant move because it was so much what they needed. And you, you, okay, well, Boston made some good moves, but did Boston, you know, they didn't need Orlov like Edmonton needed a big defensive defenseman. And particularly at the start of that game, Ekholm was so impactful in that game last night. I mean, he was big and he was strong and he was impactful. And that's something that they haven't had on the defensive side. I think it takes a huge, huge burden off of, Darnell Nurse in terms of matchups on the left side. Nurse ends up scoring the winning goal, but um, Ekholm was a factor all the way across the box scores. I guess Skinner, because of his lack of experience, uh, Pooley's a bit of a wild card, but do the skaters set up as the um, best well uh, all-round Edmonton team that we've seen in a long time? I think it is. I think it's the most balanced. I think the addition of, of Ekholm lets that happen, but now Kane is back, and I wasn't a big fan of that signing, guys, um, but he's a piece of that team, and he's effective, and they seem to be able to to keep him in a good place. Zach Hyman is what Zach Hyman is. The numbers he's put up, are, I never, ever thought I would say that about Zach Hyman from an offensive standpoint. And when he first came in, you know, in, in Toronto, it was fashionable to criticize him being a top six forward because he just didn't have the components. But, boy, is he just stomped past all of that this is the deepest team by far i know also you're not a huge fan of rnh and i'm not either kind of set up as uh you know the contract gonna have a hundred points yeah but yeah but is he doing something different pooley that you're more comfortable going into the playoffs because sure it's great that he has the points but is he going to be able to play that style come playoff time the two-way i think he is i think he's grown more as a player than than uh, you know he's he's another one that i thought if you wanted to change your hockey team that was the way you could change it you could take those six million dollars and do something differently with it and i know he, you know he he chose to stay probably a little bit of a discount and they chose to keep him on a term and to me the the interest in changing their team you just didn't change your team and yet they've been able to get past that. And that's a pretty good manager out there in Kenny Holland. And, and he, you know, he's on the inside. He knows what's going on. He knows how important Nugent Hopkins was to that team. But, yeah, he's, he's, he's absolutely been terrific this year for them. All right, let's end with uh, thoughts on what may or may not uh, be going on in uh, Philadelphia. There's some, uh, some chatter out there on social media that potentially there could be uh, a move of significance uh, with the Flyers uh, today. So I'll ask you first and foremost, have you heard anything, uh, any rumblings uh, whatsoever? Um, and uh, even if you haven't, do you feel like whether it's now or whether it's into the offseason that the potential is there for, uh, for some change in Philadelphia? I think change is inevitable, guys. I was in two weeks ago on a Friday night, and, and Montreal manhandled the Flyers that night, and the building wasn't full on a Friday night, you know, in early March or late February, early March. Or, and it, it was just watching it, it felt like change was inevitable. It just does. Now, what that means, I don't know, and, and I don't think anybody is quite certain. There have been, there have been rumbles coming out of there, and you know, and I still know a lot of people in the area, and so I, you know, you hear things, but I haven't heard from from anything near an accurate source that there would be change or what the timing of the change will be. But I, they can't continue like they're continuing um, unless there's a plan in place that hasn't been introduced to us yet about what's going to happen. It, it doesn't look like when you, when you watch. 
teams now. We've talked about Ottawa. I've talked to you guys about Montreal, how you feel like there's a plan in place that's really definitive. And even in Chicago, guys, you know, we talked about um, on Monday in Chicago at the morning skate, you know, that was a different feeling than I felt in Chicago when, when you know, pre-Patrick Kane and pre-Jonathan Taves. Like, it feels like there's a plan in place. I'm not sure that that's the same feeling in Philadelphia right now. And when that happens, then it's just a matter of if, if change is going to happen, what that means and what direction it goes in. Um, but it appears that as the team continues to play like they're playing, um, that, that it would be inevitable. I was talking the last hour about how the talk has always been around the Flyers in particular, that the fan base there, that, and maybe it was under Ed Snyder, this was the feeling that they would never accept a, a, you know, a total tear down, tear down and, a, and a rebuild in the time that it would take. And yet I look at what happens uh, uh, with the 76ers who share the, the arena with, and nobody underwent a, lo- a, a, a bigger and a longer teardown than the process, as they called it, uh, with the 76ers. Is that indeed the truth, that the Flyers, at least under Ed Seiner, and maybe now the fan base just won't accept um, you know what seems like should be the course of action in Philadelphia? I, I don't believe so. I, I believe they will now. I, I think it's... You know, back then, it wasn't the terminology anyone used, um, that, that it was a planned teardown. I think Jeff Gordon's letter in 2018 was brilliant in New York, and it accelerated faster than, than he even thought it was going to. But I don't think that's the case. You know, I was there. The ultimate turnover to me was when I was there, and it was Bob Clark retired. And, you know, he was still an effective player. And he retired to take over, and that would have been working closely with Mr. Snyder, and that was the plan. And you think about the sacrifice he made as a player, because that guy would have—he might still be playing if it was his choice. <laughs> and he might. I mean, he loved playing that much, and you know, to take the skates off him. But he made the sacrifice himself of stepping out, knowing that the team wouldn't change when he was still playing. So, you know, he, he's still a part of it on a consulting basis, on a senior consultant basis, and, and he would know that. And they've tried to patch it together. It hasn't worked. It simply hasn't worked. And inevitably, it is going to have to change to a larger degree. It's funny, Pooley, they're back where they were with Russ Farwell right before they made the Lindros deal, right? It was just kind of a lost all, of, you know, the Broad Street bully, all of the kind of the team. But also to that, uh, and again, I don't think you put the fault on Holmgren and Clark and other people, but are they at the spot where Edmonton was at a few years ago where you finally have to, you know, go? And, well, I think you should be the manager. I mean that sincerely. But you have to kind of just almost clear all that away. And, and you know, because a lot of the negativity is attached to, let's see, old flyers way. Well, it, is, it, it hasn't changed drastically enough. And, you know, and so you don't know what elements are in there. They, they brought a different manager in in Chuck Fletcher. Yeah. But it hasn't worked out. It just hasn't, Simran. So... When that's the case, a very different ownership in there now and different leadership at the top in Valerie Camel, Camel rather, who came over from the baseball side and uh, with the uh, Washington Nationals. And so there has been change right at the top, but their focus initially was changing the building. And, you know, because I went in and they said, well, this is really great. We, you know, we did the fan studies and, you know, they've changed the suites and they changed the building. And, and I just, I remember saying to the group and I spoke to the group not too long ago, I said, 
to this group of fans. The building is nice. The team is more important. <laughs> you know, it just is. You can have the nicest building in the world, but um, the fans want to see a winner on the ice. All right, good stuff. On that note, we'll let you go. Thank you, as always, for the time uh, this week and the insight. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Look forward to chatting with you again on Monday. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. TSN's Dave Poulin on TSN 1200 is a presentation of Myers Automotive Group. With Myers Custom Pre-Order Sale, you choose your vehicle and your options. Custom. TSN 1200 presents Bet and Breakfast. Powered by FanDuel. Make every moment more on FanDuel. North America's number one sports book. All right, Simmer. You nailed Brady Kachuk. Was it Kachuk? Oh, yeah. Brady Kachuk. Kachuk. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Okay. Nailed that. Had the over. Okay. Had Seattle. I, I did have Seattle. So, okay. Was yeah. looking good there early in the third for 38 seconds. Well, good and bad, right? I don't know. I really wanted that. So, yeah. Um, it, nice for the Sens to come back. So, All two, right. two out of three ain't bad. All right. So, we're going to look ahead to tomorrow night. Now, we don't have the posted odds yet because the game isn't until uh, tomorrow night. For the Sens in Vancouver, game number three of the uh, road trip. So, we'll say that uh, in all likelihood. We'll kind of spitball a little bit here. I think Vancouver will be a slight favorite in this yeah, game, being yeah. at home, yeah. playing a little bit uh, better hockey. So what are you thinking for the game tomorrow night, Sens in Vancouver, and who do you think might score a goal for either yeah, team? Yeah, I think that, first of all, uh, it'll be fairly, not high scoring, but I'll take the over if it's anywhere around 6, 6.5. I'll take the Sens to continue along. I think Sogard will start. I think he'll play well. I think they'll find a way to win the hockey game. And I'm going out on a limb, JR, because you know what tomorrow night is, right? Tomorrow night is Saturday. Yeah, and it's the return of Travis Hamonick to oh, Vancouver. Wow. And this time it's personal. So you take <laughs> take the hammer from the point. Wow. The, I would not. Much, much maligned Travis Hamonick. So I'm going with the hammer to bring one home. When you asked me about you know what tomorrow night is, I immediately went, uh, first answer off the top of my head, Saturday. Good check. Next one, yeah. I had time change. Is the time yeah, change involved yeah. here? No, that was not it. No, Travis Hamonick's long-awaited return to Van City. All right. Yeah. I like it. But you're not liking him to score a goal. Well, no, I am. Oh, That's you are? I'm okay. I'm going to take it, the big hammer. Wow. Uh, and again, I think of the negativity. It's just about a year ago that he got traded, and uh, I do not believe his return back to Vancouver. So that'll be fun. And uh, also, bet on Hammer. Hammer is in the minivan. That's so you true. can also, whether FanDuel had odds on that or not, Jer, <laughs> it's a checklist. Yep. Looks like they're ready to rock and roll. So safe travels to him, yep. as I'm sure he's listening. We've uh, we've been notified that minivan was a, was, was at the rental place, at Enterprise, and was acquired. And it's pretty pretty sharp, too. Yeah. i got to be honest with you. Uh, those are some high-end wheels, so I hope he doesn't end up sleeping at the truck stop because I'm telling you, those wheels things will be gone. That, that's, okay. <laughs> that, that thing's been kind of decked out there. All right, Sens win 5-4 in Seattle last night. They move on to play the Vancouver Canucks tomorrow night. Again, late start, 10 o'clock face-off, and then 9 o'clock Sunday uh, in Calgary. Both games, of course, here on TSN 1200. So that's the uh, on-the-ice stuff. As far as the off-the-ice stuff goes, uh, some new news, of course, uh, this week, and specifically yesterday, uh, courtesy of uh, online sports publication Sportico, uh, which uh, posted a story yesterday which said that uh, nine groups in total have put in a bid to uh, buy the Ottawa Senators and uh, at least uh, two, if not more, mm-hmm. have put in a bid that may be in excess of $900 million. So, U.S. To, to the uh, U.S., to the Gabriel Pizza Hotline we go, where... Uh, we welcome in uh, Evan Noby Williams. Uh, he is Noby Williams. He is uh, one of the reporters who worked on this story for Sportico and uh, joins us this morning. How are you doing, uh, Abby? 
I'm Evan, doing well, Evan. guys. Thank you. Yes, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Appreciate it. Let's let's start with kind of the nuts and bolts of the story uh, that you guys at uh, Sportico posted yesterday about the sale of the Sens. Uh, fill everybody in. Yeah, really, really good amount of interest. Nine different groups uh, submitted bids for for the Senators in, in the most recent on Tuesday's deadline. And, and for folks who don't follow team sales that often, it's a big number. It's pretty rare to have nine groups competitively bidding for for a franchise that's worth around a billion dollars or maybe a little bit more. So uh, a really healthy amount of interest and some big names, names that have been uh, kind of publicly out there before. Obviously, actor Ryan Reynolds is interested uh, in owning this team. Michael Andlauer, who is a minority owner of the Montreal Canadiens. He also owns the Hamilton uh, Hamilton hockey team. He's in there as well. Um, so, so, so good numbers and a good amount of bidders. Why? Why 900 million U.S. for the Ottawa Senators? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think there's a few things going on here. One, hockey in Canada is a thing, right? It's, it's a great business and, and these teams don't sell that often. Outside of the, the Winnipeg Jets and their, and their relocation, it's been decades since a, since a, since a, a Canadian hockey team sold. The second thing I think is, is the real estate opportunity is a really big deal. When billionaires buy sports teams now, they don't want to just own the sports team. They want to own the real estate around it. They want mixed-use development. They want opportunities to come in and flex their muscle. And a team that needs a new arena is exactly that. It, it, it makes the team more expensive because there's a lot more revenue opportunities on the back end for a team like this. Wait. And then the third thing I would say is that $900 million is a, is a lot of money, obviously, but it's not $4 billion, which is what NBA and NFL teams cost right now. So there's just a wider pool of, of rich people out there that can cut a check this size as opposed to the size it costs to buy into some of the other leagues. Uh, with uh, Eben Novi-Williams, he's a reporter with uh, Sportico, talking about the uh, sale of the uh, of the Sens. Would you, uh, and you talked about how few franchises are selling uh, in the NHL. The Penguins were the last one, as you said, other than Winnipeg. It's been a long time for a Canadian franchise. Would you say overall that compared to the other professional sports leagues uh, in North America, that NHL um, uh, franchises have been, for lack of a better term, undervalued? Uh, it's interesting. I think there's, there's, there's definitely an argument for that. And I think you're seeing that here, right, with, with, this, with the amount of interest here. When the Suns were sold, the Phoenix Suns, the NBA team, were sold about a month ago, there was two bidders, maybe even just the one. They got a huge price. But uh, when the Broncos were sold in the NFL last year, there was, there was just, a hand, just a couple handful of bidders. There's a lot more interest in, in a team like the Senators right now. Um, and, and again, I think a lot of that d- depends on the franchise specifically. If the, if the Coyotes were for sale, not to, not to knock the Coyotes, I don't think they'd be seeing this much interest and maybe this much of an inflated price. But again, the opportunity in, in, in Ottawa, I think, is, is specific in a few ways. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of people out there that really do feel like the, NFL, the NHL is, is undervalued. And, and if you look at the, the, the valuations the teams sell at, as a revenue multiple, uh, it's, it's way lower than it is in other leagues. Do you also look at this from 20 years ago, the simple fact that the risk of owning an NHL team now, God, I worked in the league 30 years ago, and everything was driven by ticket sales, risk and reward. Hmm. Now with the TV money in place, you're not, you're not talking about even near the same exposure. Yeah, it's, it, the business model is obviously is evolving, and, and the league adding, uh, getting back on ESPN here in the U.S., is obviously a big deal, and it came at a pretty nice, uh, at a nice price point as well. As, as you know, there's a there's a Canadian media deal that to, to be renegotiated soon as well. Um, you see valuations in leagues jump up, kind of a nice staircase up when, when there's a new media deal in place because 
almost always these deals are, are worth a lot more money than than the previous one. So there's definitely a lot of tailwinds right now for the NHL, for mm. sure. Um, as far as, as you know and what you've been able to ascertain going forward, um, the nine bids, can you kind of take everybody through where it goes from here in terms of uh, a narrowing process, uh, who's involved in the kind of final decision on on uh, who, which entity actually does acquire the team, how that all works. Yeah, ha- happily, and and I can I can promise you that, that the folks who are looking at these bids, not all nine of these bids are are are, are going to be up to the standard that they want. Right, you, you can tell when you get nine bids that there's that there's four or five that are that are the ones that you want to move forward with. And there's probably four or five that, that, that you're willing to say, we appreciate it. Thank you. But, but it's going to end up being someone else. So my guess is in the next few days, this number gets whittled down a little bit. Um, and then you go back to the, let's say it's four or five people that are, that are still in the running and you say, okay, n- next step here, come on a site visit, come up, meet with the executive team, see the arena again. You know, this isn't going to be the arena in five years probably, but, but come up and see the facilities Meet with the people. There's an additional look inside the books. You get more financial information as, as a bidder the deeper into the process that you get. So my guess is, yeah, that list of nine becomes four or five. People come up to Ottawa in various stages in the next few weeks, and then they start to get serious with the one or two people. Um, but the thing they really want is you want a bidding war. You know, you want you want a couple groups that are there right at the end, uh, trying to drive the price of this up. And and my guess is that's what they'll end up doing is, is playing a couple groups against each other, the ones that have the biggest offer, the most interesting offer, uh, and then going from there. Uh, is this a at the end of the day? Does it become whether when it gets whittled down to as you said to the one or two bids? Is it become a uh, at that point a blind bid process? Is it more of an auction? Uh, you know, uh, potential owner A is willing to go here. Hey, potential owner B, are you willing to do that? And and is the final decision A who makes the, I guess the final decision ultimately is it with the family, or is it the family in conjunction with the NHL, or does the NHL uh, make the final decision on on who gets the uh, the winning bid? Yeah, those are good questions. Some some processes do kind of keep doing bidding until until they they don't feel like anyone can go higher. Another thing that happens often is you you ask all the remaining people for best and final bids. So you say, you know, we're doing one more round. So give me the highest absolute number that you that you want, and we'll consider that. Uh, and that's often that's often how these things play out. From what I understand, this is a decision that the family is going to make. The NHL obviously uh, approves owners, and if for some reason the, the the family wanted to sell to someone whose whose money was from ill-gotten ways or had a had a checkered past, I do think the NHL would would have a say in, in saying no. But for the most part, you know, with, with the bidders who are involved here and obviously the bank and, and, and the Melnick family are aware of, you know, who, who, who fits the bill for an NHL owner and who doesn't. Uh, I think in the end result, they're going to have a, a group of a couple of bidders that they know the NHL will approve. And then in that case, yeah, this is a family that the, this is a decision that the family makes in conjunction with its bankers and, and with the folks who are running the team. You kind of answered my next question, but I wanted to kind of make that clear because I, there has been a lot of information out. And I've said to people, listen, the NHL can tell you who can't own the team, but they can't tell you who can in the sense of, sure, you want Ryan Reynolds to be involved, but I think a lot of people are this perception like the league is going to tell, no, no, this is my team. You can tell me who can't buy it, but you can't tell me who has to have it. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, and, and there's obvious reasons why the league and, and maybe even folks, the senators would like someone with Ryan's platform uh, to be an owner on, on a minority sense, but 
um, yeah, that, that's that's not, that's not a decision that the league gets to make. So you're right. The the way the leagues get involved here is 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 in the rare instances where someone wants to buy a team that the league does not want to buy a team for for X or Y financial reasons. But in in the end, this is not a decision the NHL makes. With uh, Eben Novi Williams, a reporter for Sportico, talking about the uh, sale of the Sens. Uh, and you can follow uh, Sportico.com for uh, their latest story on this, which was uh, published uh, yesterday. On the Ryan Reynolds uh, front, he has, he has aligned himself with the Remington Group, uh, uh, it appears. If for whatever reason, uh, the family, I guess, ultimately doesn't decide to move forward with that group, whether for financial reasons or other, um, you know, I, I think you guys just talked touched on the fact that the NHL would like to have Ryan Reynolds involved. Do, is there an option from what you understand for him to kind of jump to potentially a- another group Would the NHL help broker that? Or do you think he's all in on the group he's with and that's it? I don't know the specifics of, of, of Ryan and his relationship with the Remington group, but yes, there's absolutely a chance that uh, come a month from now that someone, a different group gets this and, and Ryan comes in as a, as a 1% uh, stakeholder. This, this happens actually a fairly good amount, less so on the celebrity side and more on the, on the investing side with, 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 with private equity and, 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 and other rich uh, men and women. But you often see later in the process groups either merging or groups coming together, uh, adding LPs, things like that. So yes, it wouldn't shock me to, to see that if, if the Remington group's bid is not the, uh, the one that they end up going with if Ryan ends up popping into a different group at some point. Um, I, I don't know the specifics of what his thinking is and, and what his relationship is like with them, but that would not be the first time that kind of late in the process, um, bidders in different groups reshuffled and, and realigned. Yeah, and Ryan Reynolds is a smart guy, and one of the smart things you do is work with other people's money. And people had <laughs> talked about him trying to own the team. I'm like, come on. And and to this, no, when you go back to the bi- no a building project, I was in D.C. when we put up the new building and when you look at that 25 years later, when you talk about, as you said, the the reference, and I'll say LeBreton Flats, when you look at the project in L.A., what that's done, what it's done to D.C., and there's just places like Toronto, it's reshaped the entire downtown. Is that what 100%. you're looking at from the auto perspective? Much smaller scale, but the recognition that, hey, this is a game changer for the city. Absolutely. Look at the look at the Edmonton Oilers. The, the yeah, valuation yeah, on yeah. the Oilers is so incredibly large. It's not a, It's not a huge market. Uh, it's so incredibly large because of all the real estate that they own. And, and and there's so much synergies you can have with putting those things together in other sports. The LA Rams are probably the pinnacle of this situation, right? They, they moved the team, the, the football team to, to Los Angeles. They built a $5 billion stadium. They're now hosting Super Bowls. They're hosting boxing matches, college football playoff games. Um, it has become a, a cash register of sorts for, for Stan Kroenke, uh, who owns the team. He also owns the, 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 the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, so yeah, this is the, the that's the dream. And, 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 and the, the stadium, as you guys know, the, the current arena is probably too far away from downtown. And, and I think the feeling for a lot of these bidders is, uh, the, the commercial success of the Senators changes dramatically if the if the arena is easier and closer to get to all right uh, last question for you as best that you know kind of give us some timelines going forward of 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 what's going to happen next on what timeline and ultimately uh given uh, especially with the fact that we have uh, you know nine bids you guys are reporting yesterday um, um might that i don't want to say complicate the process but might that make we have such a big group now that might that make the process even a little bit longer dragging into later in the spring or summer before ultimately there's a decision. It certainly could. My sense from talking to people in and around this process has always been that this was going to be done in the spring. And I, I don't think that, that this news 
changes that. I mean, there was a time, from what I understand, that that more like two dozen people reached out at the at the very beginning of this process to to, to gauge interest. So I think the people selling the senators and the Melnick family have been very aware that there is a, there's a lot of interest for a while now. Mm. I don't think this changes things. I, I would not be shocked if this process is wrapped up uh, within the next month or two. Um, just because that's that's generally how things go. Once you get a sense of who's there, again, you, you have a good sense of who's real and who's not, and then things typically move fairly quickly from there. Okay. Uh, sorry, I got one more. I just want to retouch on, on that point you just brought up, which you talked about earlier, that with the, the nine bids that are in now, um, that the NHL and the family would look at them, and as you said, you can kind of separate who's serious and who's not. Is, is what they essentially have is just a number of we're willing to pay X? Are there other parts of the bid process which may be separating some groups than others, or is it totally based on the valuation of their bid? There's certainly, yeah, there's definitely other things involved. And, and I don't know, there, there are sellers that really all they care about is that is the price. And, and you know, they, they, don't, they don't care that much more other than we want to maximize the value of this. And there are other, other sellers who care about specific things, things about the community, things about the arena, things about a uh, perfect example. And, and the Ottawa senators are not moving, but, Oftentimes when a team sells, if, if it is in danger of relocating, oftentimes the, the seller will demand that the, when, when you buy this team, you are signing a document that says this team is not moving. And for some bidders, that makes the team less valuable or makes it, I'm not interested in buying this team. Right. So there's always little things that, that can pop up that, that sellers can, can want or want to see. I would imagine that part of the Melnick sale process right now is thinking about what 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 who has the resources and who has a plan to do something either at Lebreton Flats or somewhere else. Uh and I think one of the reasons why the Remington group ended up being Ryan Reynolds group is that they have an extremely extensive history on the real estate side, right? I don't think that's a coincidence. Right. So my my guess is that there's a lot of conversation in these in these meetings and in these bids, specifically around the arena situation, in addition to just how much this team is worth. All right, good stuff. Great insight. I uh, really appreciate uh, your time this morning. I know you're about to jump on a flight, so uh, and great insight. To it. We'll link up uh, on our uh, on our social media the link to your story at Sportico. But uh, thanks for the time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks, I appreciate it. All right, there's uh, Eben Novi Williams. He's a reporter for Sportico, uh, and again, their uh, uh, story published online yesterday, uh, detailing nine bids for the Senators um, when it was all said and done. Uh, that uh, and that uh, at least uh, two or more were for nine hundred or more million dollars. Yeah, and we should talk about this more in the next hour, Jr. Because I find the topic fascinating on a lot of levels of what will the new building look like? Where is it going to go? And the part of, quite simply, hey, what do you think of Gary Bettman? If you're an Ottawa Senators fan, you should be very thankful that he found an owner 20 years ago. But for where this team has been at financially and with not great crowds, not getting a new building, you have to be very thankful because I know the conversation with Brent Wallace years ago took off, but when Eugene Melnick referenced a grocery store, and if they're not buying my groceries, I'm going to go somewhere else, I don't think in his wildest dreams he would have thought this franchise would be worth a billion dollars unless unless it was going to a major city in the United States. And when you talk about Arizona, well, the new building is certainly a game changer. But if that team is for sale, in my estimation, at some point without a new building, it's going to Houston or it's going back to Atlanta. It's going somewhere else. So you got to be thankful on that. And, And then that real clear point. And like I said... I know it's a dance or a play on words with Bill Daly talking about Ryan Reynolds, but again, we have had in the past, the NHL had some bad owners, you know, the Spano situation. What they do now is they vet and find out who's going to be leveraged. So like, think about Ann Lauer. When Jeff Molson bought the team, Jerry, he didn't have enough money. He had to get Ann Lauer to come in. 
to help him finance the project. And even George Gillette, it was a very, very favorable price. You got to make sure that the people that are coming in have very deep pockets. And I got to be honest with you, I don't know how this is happening, but this idea that you're going to build this new building that's the same size as CTC and that you're going to all of a sudden have 300 events, I'd love to know what who's, who's, who's telling that because I'm telling you, the revenue stream will not be the same as it is in Edmonton and Calgary because you got Toronto and Montreal. So we can ramble on for the next hour here. There's there's okay. lots of great points, but it it's really ama- like, man, I, I'm telling you, the billion dollars to buy the Ottawa Senators in a city of a million people that's sandwiched between Montreal and Toronto. The Edmonton building is one of the bu- bu- busiest buildings on the planet. Well, that's a whole different ballgame when you're talking about Edmonton and Calgary. They're they're out in their own, right? So, like I say, lots of angles to take this to. But just as a Sens fan, like I said, you just have to be thrilled. This is really, really cool what's going on. Well, uh, yeah, bottom line is somebody who's got or some group that's got a lot of money is going to own your hockey team. Yeah, it's incredible. And, 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 even and is time, willing to spend it. Well, so. but even that, Jared, but like, okay, let's just use LeBreton Flats. You have been okay to build on that parcel of land. You don't own, unless somebody behind the scenes is selling you the rest of the land, you don't own any of that land, not to mention it's it's owned by the government. <laughs> like, if you were sitting and, and you go back to the Remington Group trying to build a building in Markham years ago to put a second NHL franchise GR, they owned all that land, right? They owned the development. I, I gotta, I'd love to see, because the other part, and we mentioned the first hour, you already own the land in Canada, and I'm assuming that's part of the sale. Would you not look at that and say, well, we're going to build a new building here and really develop this area. I don't have any other land on the Breton Flats. So that's a fascinating angle to it on an already billion dollar investment. Like, what are you looking at? Like, hey, I got to go to LeBreton, But how much control do you even have of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a fascinating part. Oh, of all my this God. Is, yeah. Like behind is the it scenes. Is it 100% going to be LeBreton, or is there a better opportunity elsewhere downtown with more land available where... Who's, who's ever making the play here maybe has a better chance to well, it, recoup some of yeah, the investment. Yeah, and is it private land? Like, have you already looked into the ballpark of knocking it down and doing something in that area? I know other areas have been mentioned, JR, but that's where LeBreton, and maybe I don't know enough about it. I know the Ruddy Group, and they have land around it, but from what I understand, the parcel for the arena, the rest of the land still has to be negotiated, not to mention, does it not have to be cleaned up as well? Yes. You know, so, yeah. like, it's, it's really, man, it's cool, but... At the end of the day, like, why the Ottawa Senators? And I don't mean that in a bad way. Because is, they're for sale. Oh, I know, I know. Timing is everything. Oh, I, I understand that, Jared, but I'm just saying, I even go back to Carolina. Like, Tom Dundon must be looking at this and thinking, my God, what a deal I got here. Because there's a lot of parallels between... Now, it's different because it's Canada. But I'm just saying, it's still Ottawa, Canada. It's still a million people. And the revenue streams, they will get better. But I don't think it's going to be a financial home run. So, it's just really cool. All right. Uh, you want to share any thoughts on uh, on what Eben had to say uh, with us or uh, your thoughts on uh, the sale of the Sens? That's uh, welcome as well. Uh, we always concentrate on the off-the-ice part because uh, that's a big part of the on-the-ice part uh, as well. On the ice, Sens won last night. Uh, they got two games this weekend and off the ice. Some interesting news uh, as well. We'll delve more into that next hour. You can text us your thoughts at 12-1200. Tweet at us at TSN-1200. Hour four is around the corner and uh, will include... Uh, movie tickets to go to Landmark. You can go check out a flick on us uh, this weekend, so we'll have that to give away uh, coming up uh, in the next hour. More on the Sens win over the Kraken, a look ahead to this weekend, a busy sports weekend. We'll get into it all in Hour 4, coming up next here on TSN 1200.